overcome the war Come the avarice Come the war Come hell Come at your shine Come the reek of bones Come at your shine Come hell This is why Why we fight Why we lie away This is why This is why we fight When we die We will die With our arms unbound This is why This is why we fight Come hell Bride of quiet Bride of all unquiet things Bride of quiet Bride of hell Come the archers Come the infantry Come the archers of hell This is why Why we fight Why we lie awake This is why This is why we fight When we die We will die With our arms unbound This is why This is why we fight Come hell Come hell This is why, why we fight, why we lie awake. This is why, this is why we fight. When we die, we will die with our arms unbound. And this is why. This is why we fight So come to me Come to me now Lay your arms around me This is why This is why we fight Come hell Come hell Come 
The Decemberists with uh, frequent collaborator Sarah Watkins' uh, version of This Is Why We Fight. <clears throat> Excuse me. I picked that up from uh, a serious XM session that I found on YouTube. And this is Labor Lines on KRFP 90.3 FM, Moscow, Idaho, krfp.org. I'm John Andercheck. I'd like to thank Mark and Jill Lawrence for supporting this program under the Adopt a DJ program. One of the ways uh, you, too, can help support some of the great programming that can be found on this community-supported, community-supporting radio station, KRFP. Find out how you could take part in the Adopt-A-DJ program, become a member by going to krfp.org. I'm recording this show on June 6th, D-Day, from my new home in Longview, Washington, hoping that it will play, I'm thinking, on June 15th, if I'm doing my math correctly, in a couple weeks, trying to get ahead of the curve. I am tentatively scheduled to start working at a plant shutdown here at Longview, Longview Fiber, uh, which will typically uh, demand some 7-12 hour days for two to three four weeks so i won't have the energy to be putting a show together on a weekly basis once i start working that schedule it's going to be work eat sleep uh, with a shower and laundry thrown in so with all that uh, i'm putting this ahead of time Uh, there'll be an interview with scott oldham with the international union of painters and allied trades local 10 out of portland oregon and again, again, once again, dig back into uh, what I hope doesn't sound to be presumptuous when I call it the archives, some older uh, interviews. So, and there'll be music. Thank you. I was a slave to an angel trade Like riding around on rail cars and working long days Lord have mercy on my rough and rowdy ways Lord have mercy on my rough and rowdy ways Over and over again 
places you will find me hiding These are the places I will always go These are the places I will always go I am on my way, I am on my way I am on my way back to where I started Spencer across the hill She said her pa had sent her Cause the coal was low And soon the snow Would turn the skies to winter Well, she said she'd come to look for work 
She was not seeking favors For a dime a day And a place to stay She turned those hands to labor But the times were hard, Lord And her jobs were few All through Tecumseh Valley But she asked around Till a job she found Tending bar A gypsy Sally's But she saved enough To get back home When spring replaced the winter But her dreams were denied Her pa had died Well a word Come down from Spencer So she turned to whoring Out on the streets With all the lust inside her And it was many a man Returned again To lay himself beside her Well they found her down Beneath the stairs That led to Gypsy Sally's And in her hand when she died Was an note that cried Fare thee well To Coops Valley Well the name she gave Was Caroline The daughter of a miner And her ways were free And it seemed to me That sunshine walked beside her
Sark and Volskin trousers Time you were on your way Time you were learning the pitman's job And earning the pitman's pay Come on then Jim Time to go Time you were working down below Time to be handling pick and shovel Start at the pits today Time you were learning the collier's job Earning the collier's pay
orchards of peaches and prunes Slept on the ground in the light of your rooms On the edge of your cities you see us And then we come with the dust and we're gone With the wind Green pastures of plenty from dry desert ground From the Grand Coulee Dam Where the waters run down Every state in this union Us migrants have been
pulls a prayer book out of a sleeping bag. Bridge lights up a bud and takes a drag. Waiting for when the last shall be first and the first shall be last. In the cardboard box near the underpass. Got a one way ticket to the promised land. You got a hole in your belly and a gun in your hand. Sleeping on a pillow of solid rock. Bathing in the city aqueduct. The highway is alive tonight. Where it's headed, everybody knows. I'm sitting down here in the campfire light. Waiting on the ghost to turn Joe. Everybody knows I'm sitting down here in the campfire light Waiting on the ghost of Tom Joe Wherever there's a cop beating a guy Wherever a hungry newborn baby there's a fight against the blood and hatred in the air Look for me and I'll be there Wherever somebody's fighting for a place to stand Or a decent job or a helping hand Wherever somebody's struggling to be free Look in their eyes and you'll see me Nobody's kidding nobody about where it goes I'm sitting down here in the campfire light With the ghost of old Tom Joe Well, the highway is alive tonight But nobody's kidding nobody about where it goes I'm sitting down here in the campfire light Birds covering Springsteen's Ghost of Tom Job, Judy Collins covering Guthrie's Pastures of Plenty, The Chieftains' School Days Are Over, Towns Van Zant with his The Comes a Valley, 
and I started this music set with one of my favorite uh, current groups, Head and Heart, the Head and the Heart down in the valley. This is John Andercheck. The show is Labor Lines on KRFP 90.3 FM, Moscow, Idaho. Thank you. This is John Andercheck again with Labor Lines, a radio program on KRFP, Moscow, Idaho, 90.3 FM, and a podcast now on Anchor FM and some other platforms, as they call it in the business. It's the 4th of December. I'm recording this again from my home in Idaho County, Idaho, on a wonderful Clearwater River. Joining me this morning is Nick Drager. Calling from way up north, I'll have to say, way up on the north end of Alberta. Uh, Nick and I connected through an article he had that got posted on Facebook, um, part of Organizing Work, uh, internet publication. Uh, the 10 uh, Common Mistakes in Organizing is the article, but we're going to get into a lot of things here, talk about organizing work, the publication, uh, get into some background with Nick, however he wants to do it. And so with all of that, Nick, uh, thank you again for joining, and I'm going to turn it over to you. Uh, hi, John. I'm happy to be on here. Uh, yeah, I'm uh, I'm a, an organizer for a long time. I've been working with various unions, including the Industrial Workers of the World, and currently with the Alberta Union of Provincial Employees as a director of their organizing department and their labor relations department. And then I've also, in the past, I was a postal worker for about a decade. Um, and was an organizer with the postal workers for some time. Well, that's some interesting background. So um, with that in mind, uh, again, where do we want to go? Do you want to talk about organizing work at first, the publication where you... you uh, yeah, sure. Let's I, talk I see, about the publication. That's yeah, go right ahead. Yeah, give us give us the listeners some background to it. I find it an incredible resource um, and how it got put together. Uh, so we're going to direct people to look at that, but let's give them some background and what's going on with it. So uh, or, organizing work, organizing work started as a, a as a basically a, a project uh, between a handful of us that were kind of around the IWW um, in uh, the USA and Canada, and uh, and the, uh, we we basically wanted a blog to talk have basically critical discussions about organizing. We were noticing that there was a lot of talk about organizing, but yes, kind of thing like yeah, you should organize. And then there was a little, little bit of stuff about how you should organize, but not a lot about wading into debates about how to organize. And the union has these discussions about the technique, about the craft of organizing, um, but not a lot of them would have these public debates and discussions. And we also kind of felt that as a result of these kind of public, uh, the lack of public discussion and open debate about organizing techniques and, and approaches to, to workplace organizing, that a lot of, uh, there was a lot of kind of myths and approaches and ideas that really weren't ever that tested. Um, so basically the idea was was to start a blog that would do uh, give a hard look at organizing and, and kind of try and take a, a kind of a critical kind of eye to it and, and take on debates within the, the field of workplace organizing and also to kind of try and maybe take apart some of what we kind of perceived as some of the myths about organizing and how it was done. So so that was kind of the intention of the blog. A few of us had a past together in a previous blog that was called Recomposition, it was a little bit more political and it was a little bit more 
kind of specifically focused on uh, kind of direct action IWW kind of strategy, whereas this one is, is direct action in IWW, but also has a lot of contributors from other unions and, and, and people kind of in a similar vein working in the more mainstream labor movement contributing as well and talking about uh, approaches. Again, so uh, one of your key points, and we were talking about this earlier uh, and about your uh, current uh, union organization, is the difference between staff or or sometimes it's called a business model of organizing the business models of unions and a a, a member, uh, a democratic uh, organization. And uh, uh, that has a lot to uh, to be seen when you, when you look at publishing work or these other efforts, uh, uh, certainly with the IWW. Um, and, and so can you talk about that? Yeah. So, I mean, like the IWW obviously has a very different approach. I was a long time member of the IWW. I, I'm not anymore because I'm management in a, a more mainstream union. Now they have a, a very good rule in my opinion that you, you can't be management and be in the IWW. So, uh, so, so I can speak kind of in broad terms about the IWW. I, I left a couple months ago, so I think I'm barely up to date on their approach to things. But, but basically, the IWW's model is very much, um, well, almost any union that's effectively organizing is, is, is grassroots driven. The IWW is kind of from the, the, the top of their heads to the soles of their feet, member driven, member run. It's very thin on staff. Um, and, and very much a, a kind of pure direct action kind of emphasis and, and approach to things. Um, so, so I think that in a lot of ways, the IWW, because they set the bar so high for themselves, uh, they, they have to also kind of, they, there's just an interesting approach there and a lot of things that I think other unions could learn from it that the IWW has, has that kind of model and approach and basically can't rely on some of the crutches and, and, and things that other unions do, like, for instance, um, just simply assuming that the dues money is going to come in because you have certification and all of that. Um, it, it's an organization that kind of runs on a constant and renewing um, self-organization. I think that's really important. Um, I think, And I think that other unions more and more are looking to similar kinds of approaches, if not the IWW one, uh, similar kinds of approaches, like, for instance, I think, that kind of moving in that direction is a lot of the popularity of, say, Gene McAlevey's strike school courses and that kind of thing. Yes. I think a lot of unions are looking to move in that direction anyways because they kind of see where the political landscape is going, that maybe some of the old assumptions about how uh, labor law is going to be structured and how it's worked in the past are maybe is maybe kind of falling apart. And, uh, and, and they want to kind of get ahead of that and, and establish robust enough organizations to kind of weather the coming storm. That's a good point. Uh, I find that, again, so much of the discussion in the states over, as you might know, we had a general election uh, about a month ago. Uh, So much of the discussion on the labor front was uh, the importance of uh, political appointments. Uh, But from my perspective, that leaves us so vulnerable. Every four years, there could be a switchover and uh, we're lying we're, to begin with we're relying on uh, campaign promises uh, so again a robust organization that can uh, it, it at the very least hold uh, a politician's feet to the fire as they say uh, seems to me the way we have to go considering uh, all these enormous changes we've seen in the last 40 50 years 
uh, with such things as neoliberal capitalism, Nick. So, uh, again, organizing uh, model or a member-driven model for unions uh, versus the business model we saw in the States for so many decades, which did win some important battles, but as you say, uh, the changing landscape. Uh, with that in mind, uh, and we talked about organizing, and like I said, what drew me, uh, uh, how we connected was your article that came up among that you put in uh, organizing work that was posted on uh, the Facebook group that I helped uh, run, uh, Labor Lines, uh, the 10 mistakes of uh, organizing. And so you have this enormous background in there. Uh, can we look at those? Yeah, sure. Okay, we want to go down one by one or however you want to do it, Nick. It's all sure. you. We can go down. We can, we can go down one by one. Sure. Okay. Um, so I guess the first one is leading with the issues instead of listening. Um, or sorry, building campaigns out of like-minded people is the first one. Um, so building campaigns out of like-minded people, it's really common. And, and I want to be clear here that there's kind of two kinds of organizing that that, that – most people are talking about under organizing. One is kind of what unions refer to as external organizing, which is bringing in new bargaining units. Um, often that is the harder job. Um, it's it's the union hasn't been established yet. You are building something from scratch, and you're you're setting it in. Uh, you're setting kind of roots down in the workplace and building the infrastructure up from there. Um, and then the other one is uh, is building campaigns and building issues and engagement in already existing bargaining units and developing and building them out. So, so basically, uh, so basically the error in both of those kinds of organizing though, in building your campaigns out of like-minded people is a lot of organizers, first of all, leadership like to hire organizers with leftist politics. And then people with leftist politics like to go to workplaces and start identifying all the people who think like them. Um, and the problem is that the people who think like them, it, it's, it's just completely beside the point on whether or not those are the people that anybody on the job listens to. In fact, in a lot of workplaces, often the lefties are not necessarily the people everybody listens to. Um, so, so you need to build a campaign based off of an honest assessment of who the leaders are in the social dynamic in the workplace. And then you need to build relationships with those people and, a, and an organization that is grounded in the dynamics of that workplace in such a way that you can bring everybody over, that you can basically develop organizers out of the, out of the people who are the most natural people who are inclined to organizing, regardless of their politics, because there's a shared goal and there's a shared project. And the truth of the matter is, regardless of what your opinion is on uh, whether or not the Democrats should adopt X policy position or what your position is on the class nature of the Soviet Union circa 1928. The, the simple fact is that, that it's a deeper sort of politics to build your campaign and your organization off of what people are alienated by at their jobs, what they're upset by at their jobs, and build out the campaign from there. So you need to be able to uh, to develop the campaign out of out of the actual dynamics on the job itself and what people are actually concerned about at work. Okay. I mean, it, I mean, you know, it's, it's interesting that it does make sense, but people have to do that uh, check, you know, who are, you know, are you in an echo chamber in effect? You know, it, of course, social media is just so superb at maintaining that. But when you get into the workplace, uh, Right. I mean, the, the workplace to me, uh, you know, uh, and I'm amateur at using this term, but the workplace is uh, the ultimate uh, popular front. Right. We all have to go to work. Everyone that comes in there brings uh, unique situations from home. But how the work 
affects them, uh, that's what that's the commonality you're looking at. Well, and then you build your politics out of that, right? You build people's awareness and what how they orient towards the work based off of the struggles they've actually lived rather than the struggles you think should be important to them or you think are important to you. Okay. All, All right. right. So, so, so should we talk yeah. about the next one? Please. Okay. So leading with the issues instead of listening. So a, another really common one is for someone to come up to a workplace. They do some conversations with a few of the people who work there. Again, this one can often pair up with the, uh, with the only talking to people with politics like you. So you talk to the few lefties in the, in the room and you get a sense of what's going on at the workplace. And then you decide what the issue is going to be. Um, that you're going to organize around and you decide what's happening. And the problem is that what you're doing is you're leading with the issues that you've picked rather than listening to people and doing the longer and harder work of figuring out what their problems are and what are the things that are going to get them involved in, in the campaign and the things that they're going to, going to be involved in. And sometimes those are going to be big issues that maybe aren't dealt with so easily. Um, and you need to be honest with people about the limits of those issues and, and how far you can get. But then on the other hand, there's often in any workplace a thousand petty gripes, tiny issues that are actually very winnable. Uh, things like, you know, the cleanliness of the break rooms or bathrooms, things like the parking situation um, and those kind of where offices are located and those kinds of things or, or faulty equipment or dangerous equipment. And those things are actually kind of the gold that they're the bread and butter when people are, are mad. And you find out what those smaller gripes are, the smaller complaints, issues that are basically about control over the job and control over the conditions of work. And you start talking to people about those issues and build them up and start building up winnable demands around those. And, and before you even sign a contract, before you're even necessarily entirely public, you can start moving on those issues and racking up wins and building confidence. And when you can do that, you start sending groups in and you establish the union as something practical. But then it's not like a sales pitch where you're like, join the union, get a raise. Um, what you're doing is you're, you're pointing to real problems on the job and, and, and solving them with people who are actually engaged through the issues um, through that they picked, that they brought to you that, that are the problem. Well, that's interesting. So, again, you're you're you're. Uh... Uh, you're showing that you can, you're a winning team, in effect, by these uh, what might from the outside, like you say, small. But, you know, uh, uh, all this is subjective, right? I mean, petty to one person is important to another. And uh, and again, getting that uh, foothold, that whole hold, it seems to be is what you're talking about. If you get the restrooms clean, uh, if you get the towel dispensary filled, um, if uh, the break rooms clean. Uh, again, I'm speaking with Nick Greger. He's calling me out of uh, the north end of Alberta, uh, union organizer, worker organizer uh, for sounds like all his life among different organizations. And we got together from his uh, a recent article in publishing, excuse me, organizing work, uh, the 10 common mistakes uh, in organizing. So we're going down a list. I think we're on number three now, Nick. You want to keep going? So next is accomplishing tasks instead of organizing people. Um, so every campaign, you know, you can break it down into tasks. You can break it down into a kind of formula or a recipe, and then you can kind of move through that formula or recipe. And lots of organizer training uh, programs will, will do that. Will do that, and it's an important part of conveying information and teaching organizing. 
So whether it's a labor notes, uh, kind of troublemakers course, or the McAlevey Strike School, or the IWW's OTC 101 and 102, all of these programs basically teach people how to organize, and they break it down into discrete tasks. But the problem is you can also kind of move through those tasks and tick boxes yourself. And if you're not consciously and constantly teaching the formula and teaching the recipe and teaching others to teach the recipe itself as an entire product, then then what you're doing is you're making it harder to remove yourself from the equation. Any, the foundation of any good organizing is, is being able to remove yourself from the equation and, and have things run without your presence, to have it run and be a good organization, and a good campaign, and, and left better than, than before you got there, um, so, and, and able to sustain itself and exist. So you can't just tick boxes. You can't just move through the steps. You need to have everybody understand both the recipe and formula you're using and thinking about that recipe and altering that recipe as an organization group. Um, so so that, that's a pretty common problem that people have where someone who's certain to a certain degree charismatic and driven and has a lot of work ethic and can come in and start a campaign and as soon as they're gone, everything collapses because that person didn't actually teach the formula they just followed the formula okay now that's interesting and that, that sounds to me like a very uh 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 common in, in uh, a lot of organizations or family structures for that matter uh common denominator in humanity is that is you know that uh you have to um uh step back a little from your own uh, perspective from your own ego uh in effect, Nick. Uh, okay, so that right, that makes a lot of sense. What's next? So next is rushing to fight in public. Um, and I'll tell you a story about one of the first organizing campaigns I worked with as a Canadian Union call center. I was 20 years old, and I was one of the main organizers on the inside uh, working at the call center. We brought them in to try and organize, and all of that on the campaign. The, the big problem was we just reaching people because we weren't public enough. And if we were just more open and public, we would reach all the people that we would, because we were trying to sign cards and it just wasn't moving fast enough. The actual problem wasn't that people in the campaign, it's that they were scared. And that's the, that's the main dynamic in any union drive is fear. Uh, people are, are scared about retaliation from the employer. Uh, they're scared that, that they're going to stick their neck out and they're going to get squashed. And the truth of the matter is that that's not unwarranted. That is not a lack of consciousness. That isn't people being insufficiently committed to the cause. It's just a real material fact that you need to work with people because when you go in and you pick a fight with a boss, a boss is going to come back and pick a fight with you. You don't go swinging without understanding that some people can start swinging back. So, so rushing to have the fight in public, everybody thinks that as soon as it's all out in the open, everybody's going to be there. But what happens instead is the boss can retaliate in public and they can pick out one or two examples and squash them in front of everybody. And then what you've got is it's, it's the flip side of demonstrating that the methods and that the union work uh, on a low-key basis over smaller complaints. It's the flip side of it, and they come back at you. And what they do is they squash you, um, and they're demonstrating that the union just gets you fired. 
Because the truth of the matter is that any campaign, what makes or breaks it is the fence sitters. And if you don't have the fence sitters on board, if they don't see what's it working and they don't see the union as effective, they're going to simply they're going to simply turtle and they'll ride it out and wait for the drive to finish and then stick their head up after. Well, that's a good point. And, and absolutely, uh, one should never criticize someone for being uh, concerned or worse about boss retaliation. Here in the States, it's legion. You couldn't count the cases. And our labor law, for what it's worth, is almost worthless in that regard when you look at unwarranted firings for union activity. Um, uh, you know, millions upon millions of dollars is spent every year in the United States uh, to avoid paying perhaps $10,000 in wages uh, for uh, inappropriate firing. So, again, that's a good point. You have to understand your people there, don't you, Nick? That right. Uh, that, that your fear is justified. And, uh, you know, you know, we, we go in it when we're ready. Uh, so the next one, I believe, is uh, being tactically narrow. Yeah. So, so this one is, so one time I was working um, with an employer and this employer was scandal prone. Uh, They were just really, really prone to doing dumb things and they were a public sector employer. So they were prone to doing dumb things and there was a paper trail. And so what we would do is we would track the paper trail. We'd watch it very closely. And every time they did something really dumb, and they've done something to basically piss off the union, we would expose the dumb thing. And it was kind of a tit for tat kind of thing, right? And we start just basically going after them by exposing every dumb thing they did. And we do this over and over and over and over again. Um, The problem is when you do it over and over and over and over again, they start to get used to it. And the next university uh, president they hired wasn't the previous one who had foot and mouth disease and was a really arrogant kind of guy. Guy who was basically uh, really slick, PR conscious and all of that. So what happens then is that you you start to lose the effectiveness of that tactic for a while. They, they watch what you're doing. Um, they watch the tactics and they have their counter tactics and they will learn. They're not like, it's, it's not like fighting like a wooden dummy in like a martial arts movie, right? Like they hit back. It's a real person. And so every action you have against them is going to have another action. And if you do something that really works, if you do it over and over and over again, it will stop working. Right. Again, uh, 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 you know, worldwide here in the States, um, I won't speak for Canada, but um, again, millions upon millions of dollars are spent every year. Whole departments are organized. Walmart would be a great example. I'm sure Amazon uh, makes could maybe put them to shame is to uh, avoid organizing, uh, uh, you know, fight it in every way you can. And uh, there's no risk in discussing this because uh, they know what's going on. They're looking at it. I mean, the role here is to let the workers know it. So uh, very good. Uh, next one, uh, Nick, if you don't mind, we'll go right along here. Imposing deadlines on yourself. Yeah, so like, let's say you decide that you're going to have to solve this issue with a strike. And you decide that you're going to do the strike on X date. Um, and you say it's, the strike is going to be June, 30, uh, June 29th. And everybody builds to get to June 29th. Um, the problem with just picking a date like that out of the air is you impose a deadline on yourself that's not it, – it basically means the trigger point for the action doesn't lead to the outcome you want. What you want is 
we are going to strike when we're ready. That's why strike votes are such beautiful things. You, you call the vote and you know very quickly whether or not you're ready for the strike or not, right? Everybody shows up, they cast their ballot. And if you have the numbers, you have the numbers. If you don't, you don't. When you pick a day out of the air like that and just impose a date on yourself, um, what happens is that it means that you're tying your own hands on whether or not you're ready or not. And then basically what happens is, especially if the boss catches wind of this deadline, then you're especially hooped because the boss can just do anything to set up a situation where you either go ahead when you're not ready or you uh, or you go ahead and, or you have to tell everybody that the action's off and that leads to some deflation and, and morale issues that you have to deal with. That's a, that's a good point. That's very interesting. And then when you look at the McCaffrey chain, and you know they talk about stress tests. Uh, before you even get to that strike vote uh, slash deadline, uh, Nick, uh, from your experience, you're, uh, uh, you're not just jumping into that. You've you've looked at what you're going to get as far as a what's called a supermajority behind that strike vote, aren't you? Yeah, absolutely, right? And and you're doing other actions that kind of give you an indication of where people are at before. You know where you're strong and where you're weak, and you know whether or not you can win this thing. Right, right, right. Because a strike, I mean, it's their ultimate weapon, in effect, uh, though I guess solidarity, one could argue that uh, they don't fear to strike, they fear solidarity. But uh, the strike hits right at the capitalist's uh, uh, nerve center because it, uh, uh, it, it strikes at their... Uh, uh, their cash flow, if you will, their their uh, ability to generate capital. Yeah, totally. All right. So imposing deadlines on yourself, and then next, I believe, is not inoculating enough. Yeah. So not inoculating enough is is basically so um, in a lot of organizing kind of formulas that they'll teach you agitate, educate, inoculate, organize, union. Um, and so inoculate is a step where basically you are preparing the workers for what the boss is going to do. So just like inoculation for a virus, you give them a little piece of the bad stuff so they're prepared for the bad stuff and know how to deal with it, and it's not a surprise. And so this is a really common one where you go and you pick a fight with the boss, and again, you're not fighting a wooden dummy, and they come back and they swing back. And almost any experienced organizer knows that the way the boss comes back at you typically falls into a few different patterns, but it's, it's pretty similar. The second you make the first move, they make the second move and the second move is often the same. And often the third, fourth and fifth moves are the same. And what you want to do is prepare the workers for the back and forth. That's going to happen. We're going to do this. And then the boss is going to do that. And the boss is going to do this. And every step of the way, you want to make sure that as many of the workers have as deep of an understanding of what the boss is going to do, because half the time effectiveness of the boss's counterattack is actually in the surprise. It's it, there's fear and there's uh, there's fear and people get worried, but the surprise is what makes that fear not manageable. Anybody doing any kind of class struggle is going to engage with a certain amount of fear. You just have to understand that, but you can manage that fear as a group as long as as long as everybody has been informed of what the stakes are, informed in broad strokes of what the boss is going to do, and, and, and is ready for it. So if you're signing union cards, 
anti-union campaigns that are basically that bosses will play rules of money for to pull out of a box are very similar, whether it's a coal mine or a McDonald's. And you can simply hand the flyers out that the bosses use in every drive before they hand them out. You hand them out with the union card and say, this is what your boss is going to say about this, and this is our answer to it. And this is why you shouldn't worry about what they're saying. Um, so inoculation is really key to any kind of strategy. That's interesting, Nick. And also, I would uh, listening to you and uh, uh, on this is that it seems key to also the trust the uh, the uh, rank and file, your potential rank and file, your fellow workers are going to have a key to the trust they have with the organizers uh, because uh, they, 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 you know, they you don't want them to come back and say you never prepared us for this, you never warned us about this. Uh, 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 what's your take on that? I mean, to me, it just sounds like a, a basic. Uh, relationship there. Yeah, no, absolutely. And and it's not just with the organizers. It's, it's trust with the organizers and then also trust in each other's ability to overcome it. And the organizer's job, even more so than having people trust them is the organizer's job isn't even necessarily to be in the leadership role. It's to cultivate a situation where the workers trust each other and develop their own leadership. Excellent. Again, solidarity. All right. I've been speaking with, and I am speaking with Nick Drager. He's called me out of uh, the northern end of Alberta. Uh, we're going over an article uh, from Organizing Work. Uh, Nick, as I said earlier, when we were offline here, off recording, excuse me, we're coming up, up to about a half hour break. Uh, we're going to, I'm going to stop here in a moment. Again, this is Labor Lines. I'm John Andrzejczyk. You can reach me at laborlinejohn at yahoo.com or via Twitter at laborlinejohn. Uh, the show uh, Labor Lines is on KRFP 90.3 FM and also on various podcast platforms including anchor fm so nick hold on here we're coming up the half hour break krfp 90.3 fm moscow idaho krfp.org the show is labor lines and we just finished up the first hour of a show that i'm producing on the 6th of june d-day for play, I'm going to guess the 15th, if I have my math right, in a couple of Tuesdays. Thank you.